Um, let's start with prayer. Lord, I pray that uh, my words today would not be my own, but they would be yours, that they would be glorifying to you and edifying to your church, that we would all be built up today to love you more and love each other more. Lord, as we reflect on the blessing you gave us, the, the symbol of you being transfigured on the, on the mountain of transfiguration and, and how that corresponds with Elijah and Elisha, Lord, and, and the sending of your spirit and the blessing that that was. We thank you for that, and we thank you that your son is, is the reason that we can love each other. Pray that would sink deep into our hearts and our minds today. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, again, I'll go back to the title here. Um, this is part three of three-part series on loving God by loving your brother. Um, this one is the first part we talked about um, kind of what stands in between you and being loved yourself. You know, how... Pride, unforgiveness, bitterness, onsetting sin, and uh, all kinds of things can get in our ways of not hearing our brother's love towards us and, and rebuke and an encouragement. Um, the second part we looked at was uh, why we should love our brothers. And hopefully today I'll get across how we can love our brothers. And when I say brothers, I mean brothers and sisters in Christ. So, this whole sermon's based around this Matthew 22. It's loving your neighbor as a part of loving God. Those are inseparable. You can't separate loving God from loving your, your neighbor or your brother. That's, if you love God but don't have love for one another, you don't really love God. Matthew twenty two thirty six through 40 says, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law, the one great commandment? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. He was asked for one commandment and he gave two, meaning they're one and the same. So, like I said, last week we looked at um, loving God by loving your brother Jesus as our elder brother, and we saw how Christ was our example of how to love a brother, a really good example, an example we will have a really impossible time living up to, but nonetheless, it's an example worth pursuing. It's an example God's called us to do because he did it for us. So, today we're going to talk about the hows. How to lay down your life. I'm going to ask you today to lay down your life in three ways. And uh, those three ways are through constancy, through transparency, and through sympathy. And I'll define those terms as we go. Um, but you can think of it as your whole life, every part of you, you're going to lay down. 
And then we're going to walk through Matthew 18 with, the, with this in, in mind. All of Matthew 18. So, that'll be fun. So the first verse that, that's kind of the key, key one besides, you know, Matthew 22 is for the key verse for this whole series. And, and this verse is what I'd say is the key verse for today. Again, it's, it's just to prove to you that God's word does call us to lay down our lives for a brother. Because loving someone and laying down your life for them, that's the greatest way you can love someone. John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And that's what we are. Christ called us his friends he called, he called us to be each other's friends. Um, I did, this sermon's probably the one I've done the most prep for. I've been thinking about it since the beginning of the series. This was supposed to be a one-part series. <laughs> and uh, this was the thing I was going to talk about. And so I've been thinking about it for months. And I've listened to lots of different sermons by people like Tim Keller, John Piper, others, people in our church, you know, John Gray, Greg Weiss, and read lots of books, and it's the one I feel least prepared for, so bear with me. Um, but this is uh, very important that we learn to love each other by laying down our lives for each other. Um, it's, it's the difference between being a user and being a real friend. I think the most influential sermon I listened to on this, and I took a lot of, of what I've, I'm going to talk to today from this sermon, was a sermon by Tim Keller uh, called David's Friend. And it was all about the relationship David and Jonathan had with each other. Excellent sermon. So I'm, I added some stuff to it and took a little bit out. But for the most part, I'm following what his pattern that he saw in it. And... Uh, how that should translate to us. Because one of the points he made was, you know, friends are for times of difficulty, right? Times of adversity. You know, that's what we're here together as a congregation um, to help each other through diversity. And, and he referenced, and he's like, sometimes people say, well, what about like uh, a husband or a wife or brothers or sisters? What are, are they not for times for adversity? And he's like, yeah, but try and imagine having a wife or a husband or a brother that wasn't your friend first. <laughs> the friendship's the thing that's like really going to help them, cause them to help you through adversity. If your spouse is not your friend, they're not going to be inclined to help you through adversity. So we're going to talk about this friendship idea, this brother and sister in Christ idea. And, and in the this time, you know, I'd recommend reading When the Church Was a Family um, by Joseph Hellerman. During this time, a brother was your closest friend. That's hard for us to get in our culture, but it's true. It's the person who shared the most commonality between you. There's this funny, uh, I don't, didn't intend to get this much in review, but um, there's this, this song by 21 Pilots that I love, and they, he talks about making a candle of all the smells from his childhood, 
and he says, I'd never sell out of them. I'd probably only sell one and it'd be to my brother because he shared the same home. He shared the same nose, the same love for the smells that he grew up with and who else would, <laughs> you know, because no one else shared it with him. So you, your brother is your friend because that's who you grew up with. So, again, I talked about the three parts that make up our life. Body, soul, and spirit. This is what we're going to talk about. How to love someone. How to lay down your life. Totally and completely. First, constancy. I got this constancy, transparency, and sympathy. That's what I got from the Tim Keller sermon. So, uh, you can blame him for that. It's excellent. I thought it was put so well. And sticks with you. I added the body, soul, and, and spirit aspects to it. But constancy is, is a, if you think about it, your, your body is physical. It's your, how you interact with your environment. It's, it's concrete. So being constant, being there, is being there in concrete ways. Is being there in real ways. And if you're a good brother or a good friend, you're there in real ways. Okay, it's not always just like, oh man, that's, that's tough. I'm praying for you. Well, do more than just pray for him. Be there for him. Um, it's, it's not enough just for a parent to say they love their kid. They need to show that love by being there at their games. Right? That's significant. Greg talks about uh, his aunt that gave him a piece of advice long ago. Um, always be there for weddings and funerals. That's a big deal. That's, when you're, you're saying I'm there for weddings and funerals, I'm there in life and in death, this gets to the second point. Be there Always. The first way to be there in a concrete way is you may not know what they need at the moment, but if you're not even there, you don't know what they need from you. So you need to be there. 1 Thessalonians 3.10 says, As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Paul thought it was enough that he didn't, he couldn't just reach out to the churches he was helping start um, through letters. He wanted to be there, and he was praying night and day. And if, uh, you know, this isn't a super hard thing to get, how much of, of time is night, and how much of time is day, and then you add those together, it's all the time, right? There's no time in between night and day. Okay, there's either night or there's day. And he's saying, we're praying always that we can see you face to face. We want to be there always with you. But we're in prison. You know, or we're here at this church or we're off doing this thing and we, we just can't be there with you physically. But trust me, I'd rather be there with you in person than writing a letter to you. You know, I was reading another book in preparation for this and um, called Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he makes a point that 
a lot of us, because of how easy it is for us to be together and how much time we spend together, we forget how precious and delightful that is. And that other Christians who are in prison or on missions trips or, you know, isolated because of of whatever cause, they treasure even a letter from a brother or sister in the church. And we don't because we've grown callous to how precious a gift community is. Like, I don't, I don't know if you guys remember the, the four or five weeks where we were doing video streams for church instead of being in person. A lot of us, I would say, we were getting to a point of desperation. You know? And hopefully we care, you know, that's, that's a blessing to us because it hopefully woke us up to the preciousness of community. I remember having a discussion with Christiana. I was like, you know, I'll, I'll do all the mask laws in public. You know, I'll do all the stay-at-home orders or whatever, or whatever, you know, laws they want, just as far as they don't prevent me from meeting with my community, because that is something worth dying for. I'd break the law for God's law, which is don't neglect meeting together. Why? Because it's life-giving. It's precious. It helps us through adversity. Why would we separate during adversity? That's crazy. Anyways, it's, it's not a Christian decision to separate. But it's always. It's during fasting and feasting, and, and that's all the time. It's in mourning and in celebration. That's the idea of the funeral and the, the wedding. Hopefully you're not mourning on a wedding day. And hopefully you're not celebrating at a funeral. <laughs> but you want to be there. You want to share those moments with people. That's practical. That's concrete. That's real. That's being there in body and being constant. It's important. So the next part is transparency. That's how you, another way you can love your brother. Now, I, I pair this kind of with, with your soul, of ways of loving your brother with your soul. And transparency, your soul is, is made up of your mind, will, and emotions, okay? This is, this is how you relate with people. So your body is how you relate with your environment um, and being there in concrete ways. It's got to be physical. It's got to be real. It's got to be concrete. And this has got to be from you. Transparency. You need to be open about your feelings with people. Um, this, this next one's hard for me because the house I grew up in, it, and, you know, family, we, we shared common life, obviously. There's no way around that. But my mom was one to get stressed out if guests were coming over and the house was messy. So that carried over to me. I'd rather not have people over if my house is messy. But that shouldn't matter. We need to share everyday life with people. You know, I don't dress up when I go to visit the Hagers because I see them as friends, as family. I'd dress up if I was going to see, like, 
I don't know, the president or something. Um, uh, <laughs> you know, someone that like I wasn't sharing everyday life with, that I wasn't a friend or a brother with. You know, I, I remember a few Thanksgivings ago, this was like six or seven years ago, my sisters all dressed up for Thanksgiving. They came over to my parents' house, and they all dressed up for Thanksgiving because it was a family meal. Or I don't know why, but me and my brother were in sweatpants because <laughs> it's Thanksgiving, and we're with our family, and I didn't want to have to loosen my belt, so I didn't wear a belt. <laughs> and they gave, a, they gave me and my brother flack, and so we were pretty ornery, and we went up and we changed into three-piece suits. <laughs> but the point here is, like, you wouldn't expect to, you know, if we're dressing up, it's just because it's a special day, I don't know, but it's not because we're with family. You don't dress up to go see family. You share everyday life. You share um, food, the everyday food with each other, you know? I'd go over to eat, a meal at someone's house and, and hopefully it's what they'd be eating with their family anyways. That's a, that's a big deal. So, and then sharing decisions. This is a, a big point that is seen in When the Church Was a Family by Joseph Hellerman. Uh, this, this kind of bleeds into practical things, but sharing decision-making is like being open and transparent with, with friends of like what you think good decisions are and asking for their help or opinion on decisions, right? And the big thing that, that when the church was a family makes is, is three major decisions that our culture has lost the sense of community in. And that's like, who I should marry, where I should live, and what job should I do? What should my occupation be? And the, point, the biggest point, I think the most convincing argument he makes for why you should bring in your community on this is that it takes away a burden off your shoulders to have help with those decisions. If you wonder why there's so many young adults riddled, oppressed, burdened, downtrodden about, full of anxieties, fears, mental illness, whatever you want to call them, they're full of making big life decisions on their own and bearing the consequences of those decisions. This, like, if you have someone, if that decision's made up for you already, sure, you lose some of your free will or independence or individualism, um, but you gain peace of mind that people who love you are helping you make a big decision. And when someone helps you make a big decision, they're not just saying what they think's best. They're, they're making an agreement with you that they'll help you bear the consequences as well. You know, you can tell if someone really is giving you their opinion and they care about you and they're willing to bear the consequences with you if they don't end it with, well, that's just my opinion though. So, you know, if things go south, don't blame me for following my advice. 
You're not going to find anyone in this church doing that, hopefully. Hopefully they're like, if we convince you to move closer to us, we'll help you with that. We'll help move you. We'll help bear the financial responsibilities, even if that's like, you know, we will help you. We will be there for you. You know, having 30 people tell me how awesome Christiana was before I started dating her was a, a load off my mind. We're in a, an age where dating is, I don't know if you guys ever played that game on the computer back in the day where they only had like, you know, internet was a million miles, like super slow. It was like one mile an hour, super slow, like the slowest internet ever. And there was one game that you could play while you're waiting called Minesweeper. And you're just clicking random squares hoping that, like, you don't lose. That's modern dating. <laughs> you know, you don't know what this person's like at all. You don't know what they're like around their family. You don't know what their core beliefs are, you know. You, you get to know someone when you see them work on a church project, and it's frustrating, <laughs> and it's difficult. You get to know someone when you know what they're spending their time on or what their family's like or what other people think about them. You get to know someone. And that removes anxiety and fear. And, and so we got to be open with each other about decisions. You know, if you let people into your circle, they'll let you into their circle. It's, it's, gaining trust is a huge part of loving your brother. And you need to be open about your flaws. It's hard to talk to someone who you think's perfect. Who, who isn't your equal. So on to sympathy. This is, this is a... These first two are, are, I guess I'd describe them in a way that they're, they're things that you add in. They're things that you kind of have have a lot more control over of how you relate to someone. You know, obviously, you have some faculty over your emotions, hopefully, and your, your thoughts and where you are throughout the day. Um, but this one, sympathy, I'm relating to your spirit, and, and that is something that can only be made alive by God. Your spirit's only quickened by God, by the drawing of the Holy Spirit. But this is important. This is, if you think about these three things, this is the foundation for how we relate as brothers to each other. Because um, if you take literally sympathy, this is, is the progression that Tim Keller made, and I think it's not a stretch at all. Sympathy, if you do the... Uh, etymology of it, it's, it's shared feelings, and then you can take that further and, and call it common passions. What, are you, what is your purpose? What drives you? What is it for? What are, what are you for, is what this is. And it's a common, or a sympathy, a pathos is like your inner, like what your purpose is, and a sympathy is sharing that with someone, and so what are, you know, a friendship isn't a friendship just for the fact of friendship. A friendship is about something, <laughs> okay? It should be about something. 
That's how God created us, for friendships to be about something. And to relate rightly to a Christian brother means you have to be about the same purpose of loving God. You cannot healthily relate to anyone in God's reality or terms unless they're playing by the same rules. You have to have something at the, at the ground that you keep coming back to. Like, what is the ultimate purpose? Why are we even bothering uh, talking through this argument? Why do we even bother uh, going to counseling uh, for our marriage? Why do we even bother um, saying, rebuking our brother or sister when risking a relationship if it's not for something greater than ourselves and greater than the relationship itself? And that greater purpose in the Christian world is loving God. That is our common passion. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so that's what we share with one another. And if you don't have that, um, it's going to be really hard to, you know, you can love them by being constant and being open, but they're not going to receive that. Okay. Um, I, this is a, a way that I've heard, heard it put is like who's going to change your mind on someone? Someone who thinks exactly about everything you think about is not going to change your mind on anything because they don't want to change your mind on anything because they already think the exact same way you do. But someone who can change your mind is someone who has your trust because they share one really important thing with you. Right? They share one really important foundational, this is what makes us tick, this is my purpose thing with you. You know, and that, that's what we get in our spirit is, is purpose. So like, that's what God gives us is he gives us purpose. When he awakens our spirit, he's giving us purpose or reminding us of our purpose or making that purpose come alive in us. Um, I've seen an analogy of the body, soul, spirit thing as the body being a ship and your soul being the, you know, the crewmates, the guys who are up there, you know, hoisting the sails, raising anchor or whatever, and, and the spirit being the captain and, and if you don't have a captain, when you're, you're not a Christian and your spirit's dead, it's like having a dead captain and no one else knows how to chart. No one knows what direction. What, what's the whole point of this boat? Are we, is this a pirate ship? Is this, uh, you know, a, a market ship? Like, are we carrying products to someone? Is this just a speedboat? Like, what's the point of the ship? Only the captain has authority or knowledge to say so. And it was usually only the captain who knew what they were doing as far as like, we need to avoid these waters. We need to go this direction. This is where we're going. I know how to chart and read maps and read the stars and all this stuff. And, and if you don't have that, you're just a ship wandering through the ocean aimlessly. And that's what the difference between a non-Christian and a Christian is. And it's hard to steer to come alongside a friend or someone who's just wandering aimlessly and to get them to change course at all because they say, why am I changing course 
For what purpose? I don't care about anything. I'm aimless. I'm just stardust moving through the universe. And so the starting point for loving a brother is is that they have a common passion for Christ. And if they don't, you start with the gospel. That's what you can do about it. That's how you can love someone who doesn't have a common passion for you. The only thing that will cause a common passion is the hearing of the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit working in them to change their hearts, to change their passions, to change their purpose. And so it's, it's really hard to love someone who's not a Christian because they won't accept it very easily. They'll keep coming back to you. You don't have grounds for saying you should change this. They'll just tell you why. Why should I change what I'm doing? You know, but a brother, you start there. You start with, you need to change this because this is how you love God better. You are there because it's helping your brother love God better. So, going through Matthew 18, we'll walk through this. And I want to remind you, so last time we spoke, we walked through Luke 15 um, in the following Christ example, and we saw a lot of parables. He had the parable of, of the lost coin, the parable of the, the 99 sheep and the one who wandered off, and the parable of the prodigal son, right? And we talked about Christ in those parables, how he was the shepherd that went after the sheep. He was the woman searching for the coin, he was the father accepting the prodigal son. And, well, God was the father accepting the prodigal son. He would be the better example of the older brother. If, if Christ was in this scenario, he would have been the older brother and he would have gone out after his younger brother. And there wouldn't, he wouldn't have let his brother get to the end of himself. He wouldn't have let his brother... spend time with pigs in their filth. He would have got him before he made those mistakes. Or he would have been there right then, then and there when he did make those mistakes. He would have been there. He would have been constant. He would have been open about decisions. And he would have gone out and got his brother. So this is a, this is a parallel passage. It's the same same moment in Matthew 18, um, you know, it parallels Luke 15, right? It's, it's the same context. So let's walk through Matthew 18 together. Matthew 18, 1 through 5. We're going to use these tools that we looked at and, and apply them to these passages. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I think it's me. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. The takeaway I got from this is being a humble servant I immediately thought of the least among you will be the greatest and the greatest among you will be the least. 
Now, when he's talking about these children, you know, this is a common thing in, in Christianese, Western evangelicalism. We take this and we're like, we need to be kind of kids. <laughs> now, he's saying we need to be like children. <laughs> okay. First, he makes that distinction. And then he says, now relate to these children, my children, your brothers and sisters in Christ, like this. So it's not just some nice teaching about being kind to kids, which you should be kind to kids, because guess what? Hopefully they're your brothers and sisters in Christ as well. A significant thing someone once told me was um, when they found it difficult to go, you know, to their daughter in the middle of the night when they were screaming and yelling and crying to be changed, and it had been like the third or fourth time in the night, and they were dead tired, they said it was, they, they would think about, I'm not just going to help this baby or even my child. I'm going, what an, a delight and an opportunity to serve a daughter of God. And so if anything, like that's the bigger thing here is you're getting opportunities to serve a child of God. Your brother or your sister in Christ. First and foremost, that's what binds us together. That's what makes marriages work. That's what makes households work. That's what makes church work. That's what makes fathers and sons and mothers and daughters work. Is friendship, sharing brotherhood. You know, my brother was my best man in my wedding. And it wasn't just because he was my brother. He was, we shared openness. We shared constancy. We were there for each other. We were in each other's lives. And he was there for me and open with me. And that gave him an avenue to help me with decision making. And I owe in a big part to him the reason I'm here at this church because of things he told me were important. And I listened to him because at the time he was my best friend. And that's why he was my best man in my wedding. I knew he would be there if something was difficult in my marriage. He'd be on my side. And so we treat... God's children like this. We are humble. We don't think of ourselves as greater in the kingdom of God. We think of each other as equals. This is a, a point that, you know, if you're thinking about David and Jonathan's relationship here, David, in order for David to be anointed as king, Jonathan had to say, yeah, you be king. He was rightful heir to the throne. He didn't think of himself as greater in the kingdom of God. His purposes were for the glory of God. And if God chose David, he saw it right that David be king and not him. And that's the same reason Saul hated David was because David was anointed king. David's purposes at that time were not God's purposes. Jonathan's were. 
he shared a common passion for God's glory with David. And so he laid down his willingly. He didn't put up a fight. He said, God chose this, and I'm going to humble myself and serve the rightful heir, you know, the, the king of Israel that God chose. I'm going to serve my brother. I'm going to help him save his life. You know, because of Jonathan's loyalty both to Saul and to David, he died. He literally laid down his life for them, for David and for Saul. He was loyal to both of them and it cost him his life. If he had chosen a side, you know, he would have been the second in the kingdom. And if he had chosen his own side, he might have been the greatest in the kingdom by human standards. But he chose loyalty. He chose constancy. He chose being there in body and in soul. And he had that opportunity because he shared a common passion with David. So we go on to Matthew 6 through 9. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. You remember the, the first temptation was the temptation from the serpent. And you saw what happened to him because of his causing of temptation. He was cursed. Woe to that guy. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter, the li- enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes and to be, and to be thrown into the hell of fire. So what's a good way to, to love your brother? Well, don't cause your brother to stumble. Love him in, in concrete ways. If your brother struggles with something, love him by giving it up. That's so easy to love someone that way. But we can so often be selfish and choose our own ends over our brother's end. And is that being concretely there for them? We talk a big talk, you know, I'm there for you in this struggle, but are we physically there for them? Are we there in real ways? Are we causing them to stumble by our Christian liberty? You know, there's, there's one point where you learn Christian liberty and, and you know, you don't, care so much anymore about, you know, like dietary restrictions or things like that. And then there's another level of maturity where it's like, yeah, I know I can, but is it profitable? Is it loving God and loving my brother to take hold of these Christian liberties? What good are those liberties to you? What good is gaining the whole world if you lose your life, if you lose your brother? (laughs) This whole point of this message is we're trying to gain a brother. We're trying to win someone. 
You know, love is, love is not a defensive thing. It's not a, I'll love them when they come to me. Love is like going after people and loving them even when they don't want to be loved. That's like where real love comes into play. Love is going after the sheep. So we get to the parable of the lost sheep. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Again, he's still talking about these little ones, these, these children, and he's referring to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay, this is all the people you look around. Do you love God? Okay, then you're one of these little ones. This is referring to you. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of the Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go and search for the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that the one of these little ones should perish. Now remember in Luke 15, we read about the prodigal son, uh, the prodigal father, and and the elder brother. The elder brother, the reason he didn't go after his younger brother, in the culture, it would have made sense for him to go after his younger brother. Really, it would have. The father, it was not the father's job to go after the the brother, after the son. It was the oldest brother's job. He was the shepherd. He was the one who who had the best insight into where his brother would be. He he would have bought the candle (laughs) that his brother made. He's the one who knows him most intimately. And it was his job. And so it's actually like scandalous that his brother didn't go after him. And why didn't he go after him? Well, he shows his heart later in the passage when he begins talking about his father's inheritance. Now that the son's back, the younger son, he already squandered his half of the inheritance. And now they're throwing up. His dad gave him his ring, his signet ring. Again, this is a symbol in that culture of like, you have authority to do business. You, you are in charge of part of my land. Like he's saying, you, you know, I gave you your inheritance already, but here, share the rest of my inheritance with your brother. His brother's like, he squandered his half. Now you want me to share my half with him? I wish he would have died out there. He was more concerned about this inheritance than he was about his brother. So if he had gone out and found his brother, he wouldn't have rejoiced. He probably would have looked, like tried to not make eye contact and walk away. Hope that his brother doesn't come crawling to him, asking for mercy. It's scandalous. He didn't love his brother. And he didn't love his father. Because that was the father's will. If both of the sons truly loved the father, he would have had a grounds to go save his brother. And say, look what you're doing to dad. It's tearing him apart. You need to change your ways. Come home. Be with us. Go after your brother. You, do, you gain nothing by your brother's suffering. There's not more pie up for stakes for you. 
you know, it, if you gain a few extra hours of sleep instead of loving your brother, it, it profits you not. That's, that's what we, we get through, like, the blessings of God are ours to share with each other. They're not ours to, to guard like you know it, it, it's scandalous to think that you're better off like loving yourself than loving your brother. It's you have a beautiful opportunity to serve one of God's children and, and you know shame on me for every time I've I've taken up my own uh, purposes instead of of loving my brother or sister. So Matthew eighteen fifteen through seventeen. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. See, that's the crux here. We're trying to gain our brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen to them, or even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now there's a lot to, you know, we could talk about this in the context of like, what does it mean for for uh, excommunication or church discipline or whatever, you know, I'm going to lay that aside here and just talk to you about um, restoring a brother in a spirit of gentleness between you and him alone. That's the point I want to get here. Is you want to, if you truly love this brother and you truly love God, you're not just going to have a tough conversation with them. You're going to have a tough conversation with them in the best way possible, knowing their personality, knowing their way of life, knowing their feelings, knowing their flaws. You're going to take all that information because you've been open with each other. And you really love them. And you're going to be really delicate with the situation and do it in the best way to give them the best opportunity to be restored to you. You know, there's, there's a lot of ways, like, if I'm really amped and I want to have a tough conversation with sometimes, sometimes I get caught up in the moment and I just rip them apart. Is that helpful? No. That's not loving them. That's me getting my pound of flesh. That's me loving myself. Should I stuff it down, stuff the issue down and put it to the side because it makes them more comfortable? No. If you let sin go hidden, it, it's not loving your brother. You know, it would have been easier for me today to not mention uh, the mistake in, in wording or phrasing I used last Sunday. It would have been easier for me, but it wouldn't have been loving to you guys. So 
So restore him in gentleness. And then I pick back up at this last verse because I think there's more left to be said about it. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. I, you know, there's a lot to be said, too, about what does it mean to treat someone like a Gentile or a tax collector. And, you know, I, I think there's an argument to be made here that, you know, he's talking about in the context of, you know, he just got done eating with Gentiles or he just got done eating with tax collectors anyways and prostitutes. And the whole point of these parables parables was to tell the Pharisees, like, they're a part of my family. They've repented. We have common ground here. There's something to be said about that. But if they're refusing to listen to even the church, there's something here to say, like, maybe they don't have common ground with you. Maybe they don't have common passions with you. Maybe they don't love God like you do. And so restoring them in gentleness isn't going to work. So how do we get to that point? How do we get to restoring them in gentleness? Well, first you need to evangelize to them. Treat them like they don't have a common passion with God and evangelize to them. Love them that way. You know, if, if someone's not listening to church discipline, you know, for the sake of the flock, I, you know, the excommunication is a thing. But there, God calls us to, to preach his word and transform people's hearts. If someone's not listening to you, if they're not being restored, change your, you know, change your direction here and start evangelizing to them. Tell them about the gospel. Tell them about this great God that they should change their world and their life around to serve. So we get to this last part because we're running over. Parable of the unforgiving servant. And hopefully you're all familiar with this, so I'm not actually going to read it. But the point here is the master had mercy in his heart and he in forgiving a debt to a servant, what's happening here is the debt doesn't just disappear. Okay, you know, I hear a lot of talk about in our culture, people wanting us to forgive student loan debt in America. That debt doesn't just disappear. It goes somewhere. Debt is debt. It exists. It's a deficit. Someone lost money. Someone owes someone money. The money's gone somewhere. It's... it's a finite thing, it's not just some invisible thing that we can just wish away. And so if debt's forgiven, the person forgiving the debt is most, hopefully, if they're being just, assuming that debt themselves. What our government wants to do is they want to forgive student loan debt and make our children's children pay for that debt through taxes or um, being disregarded as a, as a country with any power or clout, you know, becoming slaves to other nations. The debt goes somewhere. Someone's going to pay for it. And this master said, I love this servant enough that I will assume the debt myself. 
I'll take it on myself. And a lot of times, that's the most practical way to love your brother. Is they made a mistake, they got in debt, take it on yourself if you really love them. You know, they crashed the car, pay for it. It's a really practical way to love someone. That's all I'm saying. And so we'll get to our communion meditation now. Ephesians 4:13 through 17. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the divide the dividing wall of hostility. So, last week, Nathan spoke to us about a covenant of maturation and a curse of brokenness. A covenant given by God, promising Abraham that he would be developed from a priest, an immature priest, to a mature prophet who was in his council. And when Abraham was supposed to walk through the torn animals in front of him, as that symbolized what would happen to him if he broke the covenant, God himself walked between the animals, promising to bear the curse in Abraham's place if Abraham broke the curse or broke the covenant. We see a similar covenant symbol in weddings. I chose this because it's appropriate for Valentine's Day. We see a similar covenant symbol in weddings. A bride walks down an aisle. On her left is her family and on the right, the groom's family. They're separated as a symbol of a curse if that covenant is broken. If this covenant marriage is broken, I'll be ripped apart as a person. These families will be ripped apart. My family will be ripped apart if this covenant is broken. The bride and groom exchange vows and the congregation makes a confession to help this couple to uphold those vows. That's an important part that we miss a lot. The congregation makes a confession to help this couple uphold those vows. As those two become one flesh, walk back through this symbolic chasm, the families follow, creating a mixed multitude. This is a reminder of that promise God made to Abraham and to us. And since he walked through that, that chasm, that split, that aisle between these torn animals, saying he would cover our sin, we no longer have to be separated by sin, doomed to live in enmity with one another. So the point here is, is I missed this point earlier on. I want to go back to this quote because it's super important to this
In Life Together by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he quotes, this is a quote from that book, a Christian only comes to others through Jesus Christ. Among men there is strife. He is our peace, says Paul of Jesus Christ in Ephesians. We are at strife because of our sin. With one another, we are at strife. We are at strife with God, and we are at strife with each other. But Christ is our peace. So when we come up to this table and take this bread and this wine, we're saying that Christ bore a curse so that we could have community. So that we could love each other and not be at enmity with each other and not hate each other. Because Christ bore the curse. So, please come.